You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, also known as your joyologist. On this podcast, I love having conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me, getting into the journey of their life, some sort of some more juicy details, you know, twists and turns, not just the bright, shiny, look what I did. But yes, we talk about the bright, shiny, look what I did stuff too. <laughs> On today's episode, I have Matthew Frey. He is a relationship coach. And his first book, This Is How Your Marriage Ends, just came out a couple months ago. Uh, so, we, so we sort of had a little bond as first-time authors. Uh, yeah, so talking about <laughs> That's an interesting title of your book. What must have you gone through to write that book? <laughs> so I uh, loved hearing his story. Again, I have these conversations in this way with the hopes that wherever you are listening from, no matter what your life is like right now, that you give yourself a chance. You give yourself some more compassion. You see that most people's lives are not like a straight line. There's twists and turns. And uh, still got, you still got time to make a different choice, to make a change, to just simply choose to love yourself and make the most out of your life. So hope you like the episode. FYI, my book, F the Shoulds, Do the Wants, is officially out in the world. If you haven't gotten it, order it. Go look for it at a Barnes and Noble. I know they're at Barnes and Noble and as well as some independent stores. Of course, you can get it on Amazon anywhere. F the shoulds, do the once.com. All right, here we go with the episode. Psst. Okay, real quick, I want to take you behind the curtain of the podcast industry. No surprise, it's a bit of a boys club. Only about 28% of charting podcasts are hosted by women, even though women audiences listen to podcasts 20% more than men. Women also control 85% of household purchasing power in the US. So the question is, why are our voices undervalued in this space? One company that's working to solve this problem is Asa Collective. I'm a proud member of this platform that connects women plus podcast creators with advertisers to amplify and support underrepresented voices. They have teamed me up with some amazing brands that I was already a fan of and then given me the opportunity to monetize my podcast, bring a little bit of money in that even goes to pay my editor and so much more things by talking about brands that I love on this podcast. If you want to support Asa's effort and learn more about the company, they're running a crowdfunding campaign on Start Engine to become one of the first podcast networks owned by its listeners and members. That's you and me. Visit startengine.com slash Asa. That's O-S-S-A. So startengine.com backslash O-S-S-A to learn more. All right, let's get to the episode. 
Okay, so as I said, we're definitely going to talk about your book at some point, but I'm going to bring it off from the start because I was very intrigued by the title, which is why I wanted to talk to you. So can you tell us what the title is with the subtitle? Because as you said already to me, the subtitle you think is very important, but I love the title alone. (laughs) Yeah, the title of the book is This Is How Your Marriage Ends. And I had a friend say that he was going to give one to his friend who was recently married. And I said, that's a just a scary title to hand to somebody on their wedding day. So I hope that they pay attention to the subtitle, which is a hopeful approach to saving relationships. And it's it's not supposed to be a, a predictor of marital doom. I, I think it probably is a good idea. I mean, obviously, I have not read the book, but just from yeah, what you're trying to saying it across there, it probably is a good idea to give to people when they announce their engagements or marriage. Okay, but I'm guessing um, you didn't grow up thinking I'm going to write a book about relationships. (laughs) So I love getting into people's journeys and especially starting like high school days. Like what was your life like? And did you have an idea of like, this is what I'm going to be or have any like parental or feel societal pressure of, okay, you should go to college. You know how to be this, that. Um, Definitely pressure to go to school, like higher education, but no like clear direction. And I had friends that were like, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be X, Y, and Z. And I didn't have that. And I was a little envious of it, frankly. Um, I do have kind of an ADHD issue, which I was dealing with back then, but there wasn't, we didn't have a label. I was going to say, did you actually have a diagnosis back then? No, I'm I'm about to turn 43. And it wasn't until I was maybe 34 or five that I had any idea that what I experienced mentally wasn't what everybody experienced mentally. I just thought I was, just thought everybody was prone to forget things and struggle with time and organization and things like that. Um, no, in high school, I perceived myself to have been pretty ordinary in the con in the context of like where I grew up, which is small town Ohio, and um, I, you know I went to a little Catholic school in a town of twenty five thousand people. And, um, you know, I played, even though I'm undersized, five foot nine, which is a joke in and of itself in the context of my story. But, you know, I played football and I played basketball and I ran track and we played video games and we chased girls in like a metaphorical way. Um, that's what we were doing as teenage boys. And I learned a lot of sort of inadvertently quasi-toxic behaviors while doing so that, you know, didn't serve my future relationships well. But from like a career side of things, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I thought my father owned a small company out in in Iowa. And I really thought like that's what I would do. It was sort of a it was a path that didn't seem overly difficult and that I was sort of guaranteed like a decent income. And that's sort of what I thought I was going to do, go to college and then like do that. But then my sophomore year I fell in love with writing and journalism and um, changed majors and set out to be a writer. So the writing side of it is something that I've been focused on for a long time. And I always loved books and writing, but in my youth, I dreamed of being either a movie critic or a novelist, not writing self-help about relationships, certainly. Got it. And so, and did you just like pick a call at any call? Like, you know, was it then since you weren't sure what you wanted to do? Was it like, oh, where are my friends going? Or where's where the partying? My son, or- <laughs> my son is just getting ready to start high school. And we live in an environment close to Cleveland, Ohio, where he had a number of high schools he could choose from, which was not like, you know, my situation at all. So his more mirrored like the college choice experience than than I had, where it was like it was always we knew where I was going to go to school um, when I got out of eighth grade. 
one of my best friends in high school got recruited to play football at the University of Toledo in Ohio. And um, I went up to, vi- to go to the campus visit with him. And that, that, that's how easy it was. Like, I'm like, oh, I like it here. You're going here. Let's oh, this works. be roommates. Got it. Let's be roommates for four years. And it, it, it worked out. It was, it was fabulous. Got it. So then like when you're getting ready to graduate college, what did you imagine? Like, yeah, like what would your dream career be like leaving college after studying well, writing? Well, I, I, I had it, but I, I didn't achieve like the dream, but I, I did I did have it as a daily newspaper reporter. Um, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to write. And I really enjoyed that like news writing experience. I got a job as a business writer down on the Gulf Coast of Florida. And being a kid from Ohio, I was in love with like subtropical climate and the beach and all of that. And I, I was very lucky. I, I worked hard at the like getting a job process. And um, yeah, I was very proud of the fact that I did. And so got away and got to experience something other than, you know, middle America, although I, you know, I'm not sure. It turns out there's an awful lot of Midwesterners that end up in Florida yeah. as well. Did you end up, did you end up there because you were looking for a job or like, did you, did you want to be like, let me move somewhere warm and look for jobs there? Yeah, I wanted to live. I, I always told people I, I eventually got to experience California, you know, as I aged and, and, and got to travel more. And I always said, if I'd been to California, this is where I would have wanted to come because California is an extraordinarily gorgeous place. Um, no offense, which is also really nice too. But I just, when you're from Ohio, Florida's like where you go. I, you go, you know, I am from, you go to Myrtle I'm Beach. from Cincinnati, Ohio. We took, oh, okay. we took vacations in Florida every year. I now, li- oh, you get it I now live in California. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. You get all of me. Yeah, that's. That's exactly how I feel about it. I know I'm 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 genuinely fond of Florida. I think that from a from a from a geographical standpoint, it's um, easy. And yeah, it's 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 really nice. And I could actually end up back there because I lived there about four and a half years, and I really like. And I think I'd like it more as an older person. I'm I'm about to turn forty three. I, I think I'd like it more now than I did would as like you know a twenty two year old fresh out of school because the age like really skewed. I don't know where you lived or what you remember, but it skews. Oh, you didn't. Live I didn't. Yeah. Excuse me. You just Only vacationed, vacationed there. there. Yeah. So maybe you don't know, but I mean, you, you're aware intellectually, but maybe you like don't know what it feels like to go to restaurants and like everybody's 25 years your senior. Right. I guess that. But, but I still uh, like have. I think too from growing up in in Ohio and like going to Florida. That to me, it, I have. I understand that like a lot of people think of Florida as like retirement community, but I still think of it as like you woohoo, you get away and party like spring break or like senior trip and stuff like that. But really, yeah, like, yeah, it's maybe not what it's like year round. It's like people come down and wreck their lives for a week. <laughs> like, and I, I seriously thought I seriously thought it was going to be just like any any of the places I'd lived from a like demographic standpoint and from like a cultural standpoint. Except I would have gorgeous weather and I would have like live reggae music and I would have, you know, umbrella drinks and whatever. And I'm like, this sounds ideal. I'm going to go do this. But it's, that's not what it is. I'm not saying it doesn't have its perks and there's some great things about it. And when you don't love winter, Florida is, is lovely for eliminating like that part of your life. But um, it wasn't what I'd imagined. And I did genuinely want to get back to... It turns out I valued friends and family more than I valued. Them. Yeah. Um, it's what I learned about myself from age like 22 to 26. Interesting. So then... Yeah. So while you you were like 
living your dream at, in some ways. Like you moved to somewhere warm, you got your journalism job. Like how was that too, working for the newspaper? Like, did you feel like fulfilled and like, look at me, I'm doing this? Or like, did it feel like, you know, yeah, what was that experience? And how long did you end up staying there? Um, loved the work part of it. You know, every job has its has its downside. And I, you know, there were things about it I didn't like, but that was probably more a byproduct of me being young and ignorant and, and entitled. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, I definitely think, I definitely think that if you could make a living, right? I, I am too something. I don't know what the word is. I don't want it to be associated with greedy, but, but that's the closest I can come up with because I don't want to live on like struggling journalist salary. I just don't. And I'm I'm not afraid to say that out loud. I, I don't. But at the time, I didn't think it mattered because I came from nothing and you don't make anything in college and you're super poor. Well, also, so like, just yeah, you're first something. starting out. Like, I think it, at least back then, too, because, yeah, I'm 41. So it's like expected. Yeah, you get out of college, you get entry level position. Like, oh, my gosh. And you get to work in your field. Like, then you're like, amazing. <laughs> Whereas, like, I think these days it's like, we're up. Okay, I just graduated. Where's my six-figure salary? <laughs> I, I got to meet people and learn about something I didn't know almost every day. And those two things are like so good for me. This the meeting new people and engaging in subject matter that I may be unfamiliar with. I enjoyed that process because you have to learn it to like write the news story. And um, even though, you know, it was business, which wasn't necessarily my number one area of interest, there's still just a ton of humanity in it. And I, I'm pretty good at being interested in just about anything. I, I value, I value learning and I value things that other people are passionate about, it's particularly when I'm like in their company. That makes sense. I'm a curious person. So I feel you there. Um, so what, yeah. So what did you end up doing after that? Or like what, what made you choose to, did you, was it cause you wanted to move back or did you? Yeah. This intertwines with like my relationship. I was going to ask you, I was like, well, because, I was like, we're eventually going to have to get to relationships well, since your book. Yeah. We met, we met in college and she, she moved down to Florida as well, but it wasn't like a cohabiting situation. It was just like, we lived in the same area together and probably should have, it was call it old school. Like, you know, like we're not supposed to live together until we're married. Like we were doing that, which was probably foolish. And yeah. I don't know. She missed home and her, her, one of her parents had a health scare while we were down there, but we didn't have the money to like get back. And it was a real taste of like, for her feeling really vulnerable. And it turns out when you're like with somebody romantically and they're suffering like tremendously, your life isn't awesome. Like it, it was, it was hard. You know, I resented that she wanted to like leave before I did, but I also understood it. Um, and so there was, anyways, there was some kind of pressure after about a year of being down there to like get back to Ohio. And it was really hard to find work. Economically, things were not amazing following 9 11 in Ohio. This would have been like the time period would have been like 03, 04. And it just, the economy wasn't that great. And we ended up getting back here in late 05. Like fall of 05, we returned to Ohio following a, a, a four ish plus year stint down there. And um, I don't know, I'm still, still here. I literally live in the house that we bought. Oh, wow. We Amazing. <laughs> yeah. 16 years now. And so, yeah. So did you end up finding different journalism work once you I did? I worked, I worked at a business trade publication and, um, 
and it was fine. It was good. It was a very good job. I have nothing bad to say about it. But then uh, there was the, ec- the another economic crash in 08. Um, it was right when, right when like Bear Stearns crashed and like real estate was a disaster. Um, on January 1st, 2010, my job was eliminated in round three of some corporate layoffs. And that was hard because our son had been born like he was, you know, he was a little over a year old. And I don't know, like things were starting to come to a head in our, in our marriage at that point too. And all of it is, is, is interconnected from like a career standpoint, but, but it took my marriage ending in order to find this vocation, so to speak. Got it. So to work, to work in this space. So, yeah. So what was the, like, you know, I'm guessing, uh, was it like just slow evolution of the relationship that led to it ending? Yeah, it's my personal belief that the vast, vast majority of relationships, that's the story they have that um, the premise of my work is that two good, and I know that that's a really subjective term and that people are going to quibble with it, but that two good people meet and they genuinely want to be married. It's a voluntary activity most of the time. They genuinely want to be married. They love each other, want to be married for life. And then very slowly, it, it, it sort of fractures and falls apart and things start to feel ugly. And I don't think people know how to name it. And, and I believe very strongly in this idea that what's happening is we're eroding trust in our blind spots. And it's usually in male-female relationships, men doing things they don't calculate to be harmful. <laughs> Their female partner saying, hey, Dick, this is harmful. And then he has, I, I have this thing in my work I call the invalidation triple threat, this unique way we tell our romantic partners or our spouses that they don't actually think or feel or that they're incorrect to think or feel the things that they do. And so begins like the slow erosion of trust and relationships and, and the conflict cycle that I call the same fight that like everybody has their own version of it, um, looks different from couple to couple, but everyone has the same fight like in their, in their life. And I don't know, it's, I, I now work to try to help people eliminate the blind, men more often than not eliminate the blind spot behavior that I strongly believe contributed to the demise of my marriage and family. And that I think other people are inadvertently doing in theirs. So obviously you didn't have this knowledge when your relationship was <laughs> coming to an end. And so like, yeah, so did it take you by surprise? And like, yeah, how did that come about? Was it your wife coming to you and like saying, I want a divorce or this isn't working out? Like, how did that come to be an actual like, yeah. We lost her dad suddenly, like out of nowhere. And the, this is, again, so much of this is hindsight, right? And so. What I think I understand today that I didn't understand then is that losing her father was the first really significant trauma that she'd ever under, undergone. And not only that, but she lost like this strong male figure in her life who always made her feel safe, that she knew would always be there for her. And he's gone. And, and, and I do believe, generally speaking, if we're going to like that, that in marriage, the design of marriage is that from a just a regular human standpoint is that we're going to experience hardship in life and that marriage keeps people together it keeps people I mean like <laughs> mentally and emotionally spiritually so to speak together because we have someone helping to like carry the load of life as like awful things are being thrown at us and the math result is how I like to talk about it of being married to me did not equal feeling safe feeling supported, feeling loved. 
on, and I think that the loss of her father really like shown like a spotlight on that idea. Holy shit, Matt isn't a particularly like peaceful, supportive, like loving guy. Like he, he might mean well, but, but, but he's not to that no matter how much he thinks he is or wants to be. Um, and so anyway, I don't know that, that, that was it. Six months later, she said over dinner, I'm not sure I love you anymore. I, I don't think I want to be married anymore. And what, or, or I think she said, I don't know if I want to, um, because we were together 18 more months, miserable, all of them. And what I think a person should do in that situation is with some humility, think why does the person that I perceive myself to love and care for and sacrifice like the most for, why do they feel so like, uh, about me and about this relationship? Like what's going on? I really need to understand it. I didn't do that. Yeah. What's your natural <laughs> reaction felt, to Yeah. I felt sorry for myself because my wife is now set threatening me with like the end of my marriage. And I'm like, this is bullshit. She's quitting on me. And she's, she's letting the pain she feels, which I totally understood from the loss of her father, trump, if you will, usurp the importance or the sacredness of our relationship. I, I felt she was like giving that more weight than, I, right? I thought like the marriage matters so much. How could you like let all these other things matter more? And how many it years was, had you been together, was, not even just married at that point? We were together 12 years. Oh, yes. Yeah, so our marriage ended in 2013. I have... On April 1st, we will have been apart as long as we were married, which is insane to me. But I needed that time. I needed that time. I mean, I don't know like when I, when I got it. I don't know. 2016, 2017, I think really things started to become clear. But um, I, I started doing the work like really significantly right after my marriage ended. So yeah, it so was she has so brutal for me. That conversation, you sort of like take it personally instead of like, oh, well, what's going on with you that's making you feel this way or whatever. And so then yeah, you said I made it about me instead of about And her. you said for the next 18 months you were together, but like miserable. Did anything happen like in that of you like try was it just you'd both stuck I in moved your own? The gas room. But were you oh was like it like immediately or pretty fast. And was that did she ask you to or you were sort of like oh, F you like you're quitting on like, yes, you were just so you're going to threaten the marriage. And like, I don't really want to sleep next to you. I was such a whiny baby. I probably still am a whiny baby, to be fair. I don't want to act like I'm somehow like this way better person. I just think I'm infinitely more aware, self-aware and, and, and understanding of how like what we do impacts sometimes harmfully other people. But so, yeah, the 18 months, like I'm guessing you guys didn't like, did you try to work on it? It was just sort of like waiting to see. Uh, yeah, I, I think I I think she appropriately was waiting to see what I would do. If you would say, "Oh, what can I do? What can we work on this or whatever?" Maybe a little. It was so weird. It was so me, 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 me. Like it in was your head. The, the, it, yeah, for me. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I I really thought she was being unfair. And like again, that's 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 my that's the premise of my work is that everybody feels sort of like righteously indignant that they're being wronged in their relationships. And I think if we do the work empathetically, we can, we can understand why everybody feels wrong. I think it makes sense that I felt wrong. I think it makes sense that she felt wrong. As a 43-year-old, nine years removed from marriage, I just believe my wife was more 
she she had like like her version of the story i think is the more accurate appropriate story in the context of emotional intelligence and health and relationship i just think relationally she was way better than i was and it, that that's the danger is you you think you love somebody and you think they should feel this like love you conjure in your brain for them but it turns out you have to mindfully intentionally do things that equal like you're loved you know that they feel like i'm loved and instead i just did whatever i wanted and then expected her to trust me when i said it and that's just not how relationships work although a lot of people wish they so yeah the divorce happens and i'm guessing did you you said you started like a journey after that was it like immediately after like were you someone too like were you just like did you feel like divorce, like shame from being divorced or anything like that? Is that what projected it into two? Like, you know, like I failed or something like, yeah. Like what happened then when it finally was, okay, we're divorced. I, my parents split, my parents split when I was four, almost five. My son was just about, I think to the month, the same age when his parents split, when, when his mom so and you're, I did. They, you're, and I felt like four. I failed big time. Yeah. And that was that yeah, when the actual divorce went down or- like the it was conversation. Uh, to me to me when I say divorce, I mean the separation like sort of that comfort oh, okay and, and it was super amicable. It was like my my son's godfather is my attorney, my best friend, he's my childhood best friend he he represented both of us like that it was, well, it was very that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very civil and um and that no, that was great i'm 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 reasonably proud of like how we've managed the process for the last nine years, but Yes, it was it was dreadful. I I'd never I didn't know a human being could feel like that. I didn't know. I completely lacked empathy and compassion for people who suffer like silently, like in the shadows. You know, people who have mental health issues, people who have emotional health issues, people who suffer traumas from their youth. I'd never experienced anything bad and I, I just didn't have a frame of reference for it. Not until I was 33, 34 and I was entitled I was entitled not in like a traditional like had life handed to me privileged way. I was far from that. I was on the free lunch program in my early days of elementary school. But I, I, nothing bad had ever happened to me where I like suffered other than my parents' divorce, which sucked. My parents lived 500 miles apart, which made it extra complicated. Um, but that, that was it. That's, that's my list of traumatic things. And other people have suffered infinitely. And um, I just didn't. What do you think was making it feel like? Like it was like such so traumatic and not just like, you know, oh, well, that really, sh well, that, you know, that sucks that we didn't get, you know what I mean? Like, why do people get so, I think, what was it for you? Well, we can't I, talk for people, for you. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, well, on the, on the academic side, it, it, it's divorce is the number two greatest stressor a person can experience. Not necessarily source of trauma, but physical stressor. Um, losing a spouse by death is number one. Losing a spouse to divorce is number two. Because it just it just upturns your entire life. Um, I, I think losing my son half the time was a really big deal. I I don't know. I, I think maybe just my lack of, of anti-fragility might have been the answer to that question. No one's asked that before. Like, why is it so hard? I, I don't pretend to know. I really don't. I think divorce is hard. For the vast majority of people who, if they didn't want to get divorced, if you don't want to get divorced and you lose time with your children, I think divorce is very, very hard. 
And, you know, I was sort of classic where like she managed a ton of like the social relationships. And so, you know, like my life got shittier when my marriage ended in like measurable logistics ways. Got it. Um, But I I don't want to, I don't mean it on that side though. That's well, because yeah, it's like that's that's for sure. Like, yeah, you have to worry about like your kid and what does your kid think or just missing them even. Or I hope they don't think that I'm not, you know, like don't love them as much or because I'm not around or whatever that. And then, yeah, like, social stuff. And then of course, like whatever financial, like there is like, you get a divorce, there's like actual like paperwork and that stuff. But yeah, like the emotional toll, like, cause I feel like there is so much more pressure on like what other people will think or like these fear of failure and the fear of being judged. But I feel that the fear of being judged, like there is no fear of failure because basically if you failed, whether it's at a job or a project or marriage, it only matters if you're worried about people judging you because that failed. And so really, we are constantly judging ourselves because then we're afraid that's what other people are thinking about us. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> no, nailed, nailed it. Um, yeah. No, like, yeah, I think we project like our insecurities and I have mountains of them, I assure you. And yeah, I worry about, um, I worry about what other people think as, as intellectually aware as I am of how sort of unhealthy that is to require external validation to feel good about yourself is not a healthy lifestyle premise but it is just a thing that yeah i think it's something we are taught and it's going to do like yeah that it's natural but then that we can always recalibrate and go like whoa whoa, whoa. okay (laughs) so who am i without this validation or okay what about my own validation like it's nice to have external validation and we're probably always going to be seeking it but like that's not the end all be all and that we put too often like oh then i'll feel enough then i'll feel fulfilled if they accept us of this, but usually we still don't feel it because we feel this like inside still feeling of lack, right? So even if you have this thing, wow, they just celebrated me for exactly what I wanted. But that's, wait, I can't, wait, that's not really true. Or like, it's like this always internal questioning. Yes. And then now there are people who celebrate me for this work, but it's attached to what I perceive to be my greatest failure. So it has this like fascinating like dark side or caveat to it. Um, it's really interesting because a lot of people are like, you know, pat me on the back and applaud me and like, Matt, it's so brave and it's so awesome that you're taking, you know, this thing and like trying to help others with it. And I agree. It's really cool. I would say the exact same thing to my friends or somebody else. Like, there's thousands, millions, perhaps people who, who do that, that very thing in the world. And I do think it's nice, but. It also just feels weird to be sort of congratulated for like doing like the shittiest thing that I've ever done. All the things I'm just really shitty. 17. Well, so, but so yeah, you got divorced. You could have been stuck in that and just kept going on with your life or whatever. But it sounds like you got, you did some work. Like, did you, what happened after the divorce? Like, did you start like going to therapy or something? Like, you, yeah, you've obviously gone through something <laughs> to then now be helping people. <laughs> move through their relationships. Yeah. I, anyway. um, I, I was, it's funny. It's like, yeah, it's funny. Usually when I'm having these conversations, people have context because I'm pretty, pretty like honest about like what was going on. I mean, I was like crying a lot and drinking a lot and like, this is the, you know, it was really bad. I was, it was really bad. It was really dark and I'd never really known anything like that. Um, I got a little drunk one night and I called this phone a therapist via like the HR department of my jobs. Like, Hey, when life sucks, like call these people. 
me like three free therapy sessions. So I call this like 1-800 number and I'm like, my life sucks. You know, my wife left. I'm miserable. And we talked for a little bit and um, I tell the story in the intro of the book. And she, she's like, hey, Matt, he was like, you're a writer. I think you should just like write your feeling. Like, you know, like I'm not going to like journal. Like, I, even though I think that's okay, really, I don't want to sound like I'm eye rolling. I, I, that's how I felt at the time. But, and I think it has a lot of value. I really do. But I, I'd been writing like for public consumption my whole life. So mm-hmm. I sort of like semi-anonymously I just went out there as like Matt. And I just like put it on the internet. I just started writing a, a blog on WordPress and then accidentally turned into a thing. So in what were you writing? Just like, I feel terrible because my like Real time. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It was supposed to be funny. I told you earlier, I mentioned my height. The blog, the blog's name is Must Be This Tall to Ride. And, 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 and at first it was this idea that I'm 5'9 and I'm on like these like online dating sites. And people who are like 5'3 are like must be 6'2 and, you know, make like 250, you know, grand a year. And I'm like, like my life is so shit. Like, you know, I'm old and like my hair is graying and I have a kid and like I'm crying. It's pathetic. And this is zero people are going to date me. Um, and I felt it just was really ugly. So like you would write really, like that, really like what low. you just like. I, yeah, like, I was oh. supposed to be, like I was I was self-aware that I was this like bumbling like 33, 34-year-old, like freshly divorced guy. And that I could just like tell the story of like doing that. But then what happened is as I got to telling stories like about like my marriage and things like that, I don't know. I I wrote a story once called An Open Letter to Shitty Husbands. And there's like 14 or 15 of these things now. Um, But at the time, that was the first one. And, And I think that's really when it started like landing with people. And I'm like, you know, I did all of these things. And if I hadn't done them, maybe I wouldn't feel the shitty thing that I feel right now. You know, maybe I contributed a lot more to this than I thought. So I started doing a lot of like reflective work and a lot of reading about relationships and emotional intelligence. And it started to like seeping into the writing. So what started out as this like, ha ha, I'm going to get drunk and write in the internet joke about my shit life turns into this like public self-reflection on how I like hurt my wife and screwed up my relationship. And it was the feedback that I got from everybody reading that's like, holy shit, you've named it. Like, this is what's happening in my marriage. And I didn't know how to like put a name to it. And would it I didn't be know how to describe both it. men and women that would be like commenting? Yeah, women more than men, because I think women in a math way consume more like relationship oriented content. Yeah, than just men. in general, too. Like, but back then, too, like I think, women reading blogs. Yeah. And like, I think, I think as a percentage, like meaning while there's fewer men that will read it, I think the same percentage of them are impacted by the work that they, of whatever percent of the pie chart the guys make up. Um, they, yes, the, 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 the feedback I've gotten since summer of 2013, when I first wrote that an open letter to shitty husbands, that first one has been, holy shit, do you have like a camera in our house? Like, are you spying on us? Because we say that. We do that. We think and feel that. And once people were like, and you know the experience, you you have to experience it in these conversations. Um, You have to experience it when you hear certain songs or watch movies or read books. But when that experience of being seen and understood and like that person gets me is very profound. And it, it was for me. And I got that from like a couple of the relationship books I found. And you start combining that with feedback from like, blog commenters 
it just grew organically into a thing. So, and then you fast forward. I'm so sorry. Speak, Trish. I'll be quiet for a moment. Well, <laughs> it's your show. A, a couple of things. One, I was going to say, like, can you name if you remember, like, I'm sure you remember because they probably made it into your book or something too. like some of the things that went on that, like, you know, the shitty husband list or like things that like people resonated with. They were they were thematic. And, and the first one was like how I insisted on watching the Masters golf tournament instead of going on a walk with my wife. And then making it, making it like she sucked because the Masters only happened once a year. And I don't know, just it, actually, frankly, don't think it's like that big of a deal. It was just my first step like down the road. And then the, I think the second one was uh, uh, the story of this like birthday party that I went to. And I was friends with like the wife of the married couple. And I went with like a couple guy friends and we were all friends with like the wife. And the husband was like not awesome. And I knew he was not awesome. And I really was starting to pay attention to relationship stuff at that point. I remember like watching him all night. And I recount the story of how she's having this birthday party. And, you know, she looks amazing and she's this really cool person. I haven't talked to her in years now. But back then, you know, just probably smitten with her, frankly, as like a freshly divorced dude. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? Like, and I'm like, I was, I was just writing about that anonymously. I wasn't like outing people. Um, you know what I mean? I was just describing the situation, not like identifying those people. Um, but that, so it was like thematic, but then it started to get really serious about like themes and relationships, shared domestic responsibility. And, uh, you know, people have problems with things like pornography. People have things with you know, co-parenting issues, uh, money, all sorts of things. And so it's like each of these so-called like letters to shitty husbands, like ended up developing. The article that turned me into self-help guy was called She Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the Sink, which I wrote in January 2016. That thing got read, I don't know, 20 million times. Yeah. Like it was, it was, I think, very literally the most popular thing on the internet, whole world for like, I don't know, like a half hour, like the night that it went viral, which was like four or five days after that there's this like website that was called Trendalyzer and my friend like screenshotted it being number one. And I'm like, no, like that's insane. But no, that really, really resonated with people. She divorced me because I left this shit by the Yeah, obviously we can guess what that is, but is it deeper than like what you know, like what was the main like point of that? Like it wasn't obviously yeah, it wasn't yeah. one day you left no, this by no, the No, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. And it's not even about dishes. The truth is right. I didn't really have a huge dish problem. I washed them pretty frequently. <laughs> one of the things one of the things I was pretty good at was like kitchen stuff. I did most of the cooking and I did a reasonable amount of cleanup afterward. Um, it was actually a, it was a drinking glass. It was it wasn't even like I left a bunch of shitty, dirty dishes laying around like, hey, you clean it up. You're a woman. Yeah. I've I been at work all day. I like, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I didn't treat her like that ever. Um, seriously. But but this is what ends marriages. I, I would leave this like water glass there because I didn't want to put it in the dishwasher. And she just wanted it. it just, she just didn't, you know, she'd have the whole kitchen. Like she'd work really hard to keep the house like really immaculate. And it was just something she valued. And then here's this like scar on it that I'm voluntarily or intentionally doing. And then she kindly asks me to not. And I say that I'm, I'm not going to, it's a difference of opinion. I'm allowed to have that glass there. Is it because and, you, you know, wanted to I, keep like, reusing it? Yeah. Yeah. But couldn't I have taken it? Couldn't I have like picked a spot in the dishwasher, a corner to like put it in? There's a million, there's a million ways to not like 
digging my heels. This wasn't the hill. To I just die want to make sure, like, you weren't just like, no, I want my dirty cup right there. I was like, you had to like, well, no, I'm going to keep reusing it. So I put it there, and then I yeah, yes, like- yes, I thought it was it was reusable. It was water, right? It wasn't like like a soft drink or like milk or something that's like gross and like yeah, it was just water. Trisha here, bringing you a brief interruption. My book, F the Shoulds, Do the Once, is officially out in the world. If you haven't gotten it yet, you gotta go get it. You gotta go get it. There's an audio version, there's a Kindle version, there's a paperback version. Go to FTheShouldsDoTheOnce.com to order the book. And if you already ordered it, make sure to go there, FTheShouldsDoTheOnce.com, and enter your order info because then you get access to the exclusive bonuses, five-part bonus video series, exclusive tapping meditation from New York Times bestselling author Jessica Ortner, also the co-founder of The Tapping Solution and a past guest. Go listen to her episode and her brother Nick's episode also. And if you order before the live virtual workshop and party with me, Robin Euclid and Jason Mraz, which is going to be May 17th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, you will get access to that workshop to join us live. And if you can't make it live, you'll get access to the recording. Only if you enter your info before May 17th. Okay, so go to ftheshouldsdothewants.com. If you already have the book, please go leave a review. Every single order, every single review, every single share really matters. I am a first-time small potatoes author, and you guys really can make a difference. You all, you humans can make a difference by buying the book, by leaving a review, by telling your friends, by sharing on your social media. If you have 10 people that you're friends with on social media, that's 10 like that's like you're standing in a room of 10 people and you have all their attention. So don't discount the authority that you have, the fact that you do hold influence, the fact that you can make a difference. So I so appreciate you. Go F the shoulds. F the shoulds, do the once.com. Back to the episode. But, but here's the idea and, and all my work's based on it. She cared that the, that the glass was there. and. I, what I didn't care about was that I didn't care that it mattered to my wife and what ends relationships is our inability to validate and be considerate of the values or the boundaries or the things that matter to people. Because I don't know, I don't know what happens, but I think guys particularly get like really defensive and they, they like, you're not my mom. You don't get to tell me what to do. I have autonomy and it's bullshit. It's bullshit. We, we have to honor that which matters to someone else if we're going to be in a voluntary, like loving, committed relationship with them. And our failure to do that dooms us to trust erosion and to having shitty and or non-existent relationships with them. And I tell that to everybody, like this isn't like good, bad, right, wrong. Like you can fight if, if you want to about this idea of my wife shouldn't have cared. She should have like let me. The fact is the existence of this glass mattered to her. And if we all want to judge her for that, that's fine, I guess. But if I'm going to voluntarily be in a relationship with her and I refuse to honor this thing that matters to her, that is, as an analogy or a metaphor, all of relationships. And I did a million other things just like that. Well, that's what I was going to say. I'm going to say, I assume 
that the glass was so annoying to her, besides the fact that she worked so hard to keep it clean, because that was just one of the ways that she felt like sort of invalidated or sort of like, oh, it's always his way or whatever he says, or he doesn't really care about what I want or think or like those sorts of things. So it's like if you would, if there were so many other ways that maybe you would have been showing her, then she would have been like, oh, okay, it's just the glass or, or maybe she would have been like, hey, let's come up with a solution together or something. But it was really like, yeah, what you're saying, that one thing that could have been like, this is it. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> because like of all the things that have been adding up that make her feel like, like, hello, do you see me? Do you, like, does my thoughts and feelings and opinions matter? That's, I mean, that, that all my work's based on that idea that, that it's, it's based on this idea of consideration, uh, calculating for how, what we do or don't do will impact someone else. And, and just making men are uniquely gifted at failing to like add that step to their decision-making process in their relationship. Like they just do stuff and then are like surprised when she's like hurt or upset or whatever by it. And I'm like, well, didn't you like, is this, is this shocking? And like, uh, she's. And he's like, no, we have the same fight all the time. So, you're perpetually inconsiderate. You perpetually fail to calculate for it. But the, the worst thing we do is the, the way we invalidate, the way we don't even accept like the feedback. So the conversation of, hey, I'm hurt by this thing goes nowhere in relationships doomed to fail. It gets like just blown off. And the off. relationships that like, succeed. It's no big deal. That, like, is that what you're saying? Like- well, okay. So, well. I have this thing I call the invalidation triple threat, if, if, you, if you don't mind. It's in my coaching work. It's this is like priority one is eliminating this from our lives. Which, by the way, the invalidation triple I, I ended my really I never got married, but I have kids with someone. I was in a relationship and I ended the relationship, I guess, two years ago. But I lived in the, like guest bedroom for 12 months and well, it was during the pandemic or anything like that. So like another reason I was drawn to your story, I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, I understand this. Like, it's not just like one thing and that we're both good loving people but there's more i also feel like we're not we yeah like it's not like there are like those things that added up and perhaps if he is willing was willing to do it but i just also feel like maybe we weren't meant to be in a lifelong relationship but we're co-parents and that so i think there is space for that too like and that's what i was like yeah you know like there's a lot of work that can be done but you also there's a lot of things that i think we are just different about and maybe it's not gonna work for the life but anyway, go for your, I just wanted to be clear, like another part that I'm like nodding my head and stuff a lot is like, yes, I felt some of these things. Yes. I used to be like, <laughs> let me put my- <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I'm really, I'm, I'm really sorry that it happened to you and to your children and to him, but, um, I'm not. And that's what it, too, yeah, like, <laughs> so that's, I mean, not okay. too, but the thing is too, I'm also having more, you know, like I understand his situation, even though it's like, yeah, there might be a lot of things that you're naming. He was going through like, yeah, you're right. Like he doesn't get to see the kids as much now. And on this, but at the same time, I was like, I'm so happy with my choice. When people say they're sorry that my we're not together, I'm like, why congratulate me? I'm so happy now. I'm <laughs> I'm making the choices. So maybe your wife too would be like, what? you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's like I, no, I have I, empathy I've... for the partners. <laughs> yeah, no, I trust me. And I wasn't. I, yeah, again, no, like I'm not like no illusions or delusions about that. I'm sure she and in our relationship, like I said, even if he were to like work with you and I think figure these things out, I do just think like now at the end of the and that's what made me be OK with finally making the choice that I had been wanting to like feeling like was going to happen for years. Like I kept feeling like I can't we can't have, you know, do this unless I give it the proper try or we do this sort of work and we do this. And then I was just like, you know what? I think even if he goes to all this therapy, we do all this relationship coaching. I could also just see like 
sure, we could stay in a relationship forever and for the kids, but like he wasn't, it wasn't, it just wasn't the person that was like making, you know, like making me shine brighter. <laughs> and I, and like that, and just who his personality type and stuff, and he is such a great person, but like that sort of thing. And so that's what made me finally feel okay to be like, all right, we're going to transition this relationship. And that's what I, it's not ending, we're transition. So saying that for like, it's like, I think what you're helping people do is amazing, but that, you know, for people that have already ended relations too, to think not like, oh no, did I fail? If we had only done this, would that have fixed us? So I think your work is probably going to help so many people and has, and yeah, maybe not all people are meant to be married or in those relationships for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I wouldn't, I I wouldn't want to give the impression that I think people, people that are fundamentally unhappy or there's, there's an argument for, I'm I'm glad the ability to end relationships and that we don't live in some sort of oppressive world where it's like once you're married, like you have to do it or there's like severe. Yes, we just didn't work Um, hard enough or this, like you keep trying, but yet you're still like, well, great. That's good. But I still like, don't feel like my full self, my full potential, my full. Definitely not part of the messaging. I promise. Um, I say I'm not a marriage. I'm not a marriage advocate. Um, I'm not. I, I, I want people who want to be married to not be like, that's my problem is all the people who want to be married. And they're like, what the hell's wrong? Like, why isn't this working? And like, nobody's doing anything like overtly horrible on the things that like on the list of things I call the marriage, the major marriage crimes list, you know, the things that in the criminal justice system are akin to like, like a murder, rape, like armed robbery, like really awful, awful things. You know, the equivalent of that in relationships would be like infidelity and crime and physical abuse. And but it's we don't we we end our relationships because we go like seven over the speed limit and at 25 while children are playing outside. Like, that's what we do. Um, anyway, the invalidation triple threat. And this is what I lead with, like my coaching work. Um, every time with a new client is I go through this like thing and virtually every single time is like, yeah, I do. I know every, almost everybody does. Um, but okay. So the three ways we habitually invalidate people when we disagree with them, version one, and I, I like to tell it as like me doing it so that people don't feel judged by it. My wife would come in the room, this is version one, my wife would come in the room and be like, Matt, you know, something's wrong. I feel bad because of this thing that happened or whatever. And now I'm telling you about it because you're not psychic. You need, this is how you're going to know is if I communicate it to you. And then she'd say it. And the first way that I would habitually invalidate my wife would be to correct what she said happened. So like, maybe it's like, she's talking about the party last night where I said something she perceived to be like a a joke at her expense or, or Judy who was at the party said something she thought was like rude and mean and like, you know, like an insult to her. And I would either defend myself or defend Judy by disagreeing with my wife's version of this story. I, I'm making this up on the fly. You know what I mean? I don't, but people do this all the time. We, we disagree with what they say happened. So your emotions are wrong because it's based on something that isn't quite real. It isn't quite true. So that's version one is my wife's brain was wrong. I would try to like reframe the story in a way that I thought was like more accurate. Version Which two. Sucks. My wife well, again, like that is something like, yeah, I would experience where it's like, no, it that Im- didn't happen. It implies your stupid like, But I actually crazy. do feel this way. And that did happen. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, it's shit. This is why marriages end. Yeah. So I really like, there believe was it. some so of that strongly. in my relationship also. Yes. 
a good amount. Version version two, my wife comes in the room and says, Matt, this bad thing happened. I feel bad about it. And this time, I totally agree that it happened. Like our brains are in sync this time. She's not stupid. She's not crazy. This time her feelings are wrong. It's like, okay, that happened, but why are you making such a big deal out of it? Like a more fair or healthy response to like this thing happening is to like feel about it the way that I feel about it. And I would, you know, explain it to her in my dick way. And then the math result is your feelings are wrong. This time it's because you're weak or it's because you're not emotionally calibrated. Something within you is broken or wrong. Um, version three is just good old fashioned defensiveness, justification. Uh, wife comes in the room, Matt, you did this thing. It, it hurt or upset me or whatever. And then I'm instantly like, wait a minute. Like, if you understand why I did that, if you understand what I was thinking at the time, you'll realize it's not my fault and you don't have to be mad at me. You know, like I have good reason to have done this. And the math result of that, just like version one and version two, is that your feelings don't matter. But I think even worse with defensiveness is the implication that we'll do it again. Like when we double down, our spouse is like, hey, I'm hurt by this thing. And we're like explaining why it was the right decision. I, I think implicit in that defense is that in the future, when a similar situation arises, we're statistically likely to do that same thing over and over again, even at the emotional expense of the person we promised to love. And so your brain's wrong, your feelings are wrong, or regardless of those two things, I was right to do what I did. And you said it already in this conversation. The math result of being somebody who habitually invalidates your romantic partner when you disagree with them is this idea that if so what my wife learned was that if I don't agree with her intellectually, or if I don't like feel the same way she feels, or if I feel justified in having done something I've done, she, she never gets seen, heard, understood, empathized with. I, I had, so it was everything, it was always about me. It was always, she was always at the mercy of like what I believed or what I felt or what I wanted to do, always. And, and, or so the way I you wanted to feel or something too, right? So if like you were pissed off, then like she can't be happy, like about whatever. If you came home from work, if you're pissed off, then like. That's, then that's actually the worst thing about me, maybe, is I would do that. I would like, I would like punish her, not literally. I, I, I don't want to make it sound so ugly. But emotionally, but like you're blame, just like, ugh. You're like, you're, you're in the wrong for treating me so shitty over this thing that doesn't matter. When, when she's like, I just want to be heard. Like, I just want you to understand. I want this this thing to not happen over and over again. But like every single time I come to you with something, if you don't magically agree with me, then you're just going to keep doing what you want to do anyway. I, she always said, it's always about Matt. And I always thought that was like this bullshit, unfair thing to say until I worked this out, until I worked out that like we do this all the time in our relationships, this, this habitual invalidation pattern that I really think is like this autopilot default setting response we have. And I like to call it a habit because I don't think it's a character defect. I don't think I'm this awful person. I think I'm somebody who had a major blind spot and a miscalculation about how much harm I caused by showing up that way in my relationship. And I think not to sound so defensive of like men who are emotionally neglectful and or abusive in their relationships, but I think most of them fail to calculate for the harm that his partner's experiencing and the damage he's causing his relationship by being stuck in this like perpetual cycle of invalidating people just because their experiences don't align with yours. And there's all sort of implications for 
politics and religion in, in this conversation that we can expand well beyond romantic relationships too. But I would ask a human being to just start at home. Validate even when you disagree. It's not about agreeing. It's not about doing whatever your partner wants. It's about giving a shit that they're harmed or hurt by something and that you're going to show up because you don't want them harmed or hurt. So you're going to understand it and then you're going to like cooperate moving forward and like that not happening again. And I was too immature and dense and whatever to, to do that for my wife. And I really understand why she had to make the decision to leave in a way that I was whining about nine years ago. Yeah. And I totally agree with you when you were talking about the last with the invalidation um, thing that, yeah, like that, I was immediately thinking, you know, friendship relationships, like so many relationships. And um, yeah, I feel like so many people, uh, you know, can have these touchy relationships, again, friendships, things too, because they're like afraid to, or yeah, we get too defensive or that. And instead of like being open and being able to like see, oh, I'm like, wait, how is it that you feel instead of feeling like, oh, I did something wrong or it's because I'm in the wrong, like that we automatically feel like there's a right or wrong. And so if they say this, like, like, it's like we turn the switch in our brains, but we don't even do it. It happens. <laughs> and it's like become so defensiveness and we don't like realize it when it's I, I think, again, that it goes back to this, like, well, what will this mean about me if they think this? Well, no, 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 no. They have to have it wrong because I'm not a bad person or I didn't mean it that way or something like instead of just like, oh, like, let me see if I can take a step back <laughs> and try to see what hear what they're saying and feeling. That's no, I mean, it's exactly right. It's uh, people, I think, get really hung up on correctness. Do we have more time to talk about invalidation yeah. or do we need to move no, on? No, I'm good. Um, I'm good. And that's what, and I, yeah, like if you have, I have this time for um, the next 30 minutes if you still want it. So, Well, I, I have a lot of guys, they don't understand, they're like, Matt, it sounds like you're advocating just agreeing with my wife, no matter what she says. But the problem is I don't agree with her and I don't know how to say that I agree with her when I don't. And so I, 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 I offer this thought exercise as a means of like breaking through that, that messiness. Because I, I understand when you've never really thought about it before that it does seem dangerously like I'm advocating agreement and I'm not. Validation and agreement are not the same. And they're like, well, what do you recommend, Matt? And I'm like, well, here's the thought exercise I invented to like break this habit. And I call it like the monster, call it the monster under the bed theory. I imagine my son who's 13 now, but was four at one time, waking up in the middle of the night, crying because he's afraid of a monster under his bed. And I walk through like the two scenarios, like the shit invalidating scenario. And then like what I perceive to be like the good dad trust building scenario. But on my default setting on autopilot, if I hear that my son's like freaking out upstairs in his bedroom, I'm going to run up and see what's wrong. And upon learning that the reason he's spazzing out and he's afraid and he's crying. And he woke you up in the middle of the night an- and you're annoyed. Yeah. Like- <laughs> he thinks there's a monster under the bed. And my way of fixing it on my default setting, same thing I did with my wife, was to be like, dude, there isn't a monster to the bed. Like the reason you're upset and the reason you're feeling fear, like it's not real. And and I will. Like, because you don't see it just, or feel it. So it can't. It be was real. my way. It was my way of trying to like, it was just how I responded to people who I perceived to be reacting inappropriately or unfairly or in a bizarre way to something that's like not real. It's exactly the same thought process I brought into my adult romantic relationship. And what I want people to think about is when we do that, we can be right that there's no monster. We can be correct, air quotes, that there's no monster under the bed. And we can be like, buddy, like, you know, 
what if I said something like really gross, like, you know, toughen up, you know, boys don't cry, you know, be my big boy, go to sleep. Everything's fine. Totally minimize it. And then I'm like, buddy, I don't have time for this. I got to go to bed or I got to return to my Monday night football game or whatever was more important than being present with my son while he was dealing with whatever he was dealing. And, and, I, and I just ask people to consider like what that looks like afterwards. I always use the phrase, the math result. What's the math result of that decision? Well, my son is still scared. He's still crying. He's alone in the dark, regardless of whether there's a monster there or not. And, and he just learned that if dad doesn't think the thing that's affecting me matters, he abandons me literally or metaphorically to cry alone in the dark after implying that I'm stupid or weak or crazy in the first place. And so what I think is going to happen is that I'm not going to like necessarily love dad less, but I'm going to trust dad less. I'm not going to trust him with the things that hurt. I'm not going, if this is dad's pattern when life hurts and things are hard, dad's not invited to be part of those conversations. When I feel bullied, when kids offer me drugs, when I'm having complicated feelings, you know, sexually or otherwise, as I'm aging and just dealing with, you know, stuff that I think the average parent would like to be in the loop on, um, you know, that their children are going through. And I'm like, to me, that's the cost of being right at the expense of emotional intelligence because I was right and I love my son and I would never try to hurt him, but he was hurt and he was feeling abandoned. And it doesn't matter that I'm technically correct that there isn't a monster under the bed. I harmed my relationship with him. And anyway, so what's the other way to show up? in this relationship that what I perceive to be like the good dad method. And for me, it's I walk in the room, I find out my son's afraid of a monster under the bed. And I don't think there's a monster and I say so, but I'm going to turn a light on and I'm going to check under the bed and I'm going to make sure there isn't a monster there. And I'm going to invite him to come check for himself too, if he feels like it. And then most importantly, I'm not going to imply that he's weak or stupid or crazy. I'm going to say, bud, I don't think there's a monster under the bed, but I see that you're afraid right now. And you know what? I ha- I've been afraid before and being afraid is hard. Like, it's really scary when you feel afraid of something. And I'm really sorry that, like, that's what you're dealing with. And then as his father, I'm going to stay there until he's back to sleep. And I'm going to, I want him to know that that's what I'm doing. I'm not leaving. I want you to know your bedroom's safe, your house is safe. But most importantly, in the context of my relationship with him, I want you to know you can always call for mom. You can always call for dad. And we're going to show up for you when something hurts, when something's scary, when something's wrong. We may not be able to fix what's wrong, but you never have to feel like you're the only person like battling this, fighting this, dealing with it. You never have to feel alone in this like awful thing that you're experiencing, whatever it may be today or today or always. That is the difference between agreeing with somebody and then showing up for them in a way that increases trust, increases safety in a relationship. And I hope people can recognize the new, I suspect like your listening audience can, but there is a, a, a distinct difference, but the behavior is so subtle. And, and it's a conscious choice to grow safety and trust in a relationship at the expense of being right. And um, it's one I strongly advocate in my work today because I think that I destroyed my marriage trying to be right all the time. And, and I regret it a lot. That was such an incredible example to use because I think, you know, whether you have kids or not, you can envision that and like, yeah, like the ways to handle it and that, yeah, whatever is happening. It's like, yeah, you don't have to agree on the same thing, but it's like this validating, oh, that's how you feel. And like, even maybe let me tell me more. Oh, why do you feel that way? Why do you like whatever? Instead of like, yeah, like I'm right and you're wrong or this, like that there can be holding space for that. I love that idea so much of the monster on the bed, under the bed. 
it, it helped me. It, it, it now becomes my model for, so like metaphorically, it's like whether or not there's an actual monster when I'm like disagreeing with somebody, but this almost never happens. Ironically, this could really only happen with my son today, I think. Um, he's like, the only, you know, I don't like live with like an adult partner, but that's, you know, that's when this tends to manifest in our romantic relationships is when we share space and then we inadvertently sort of do something or don't do something that hurts someone else. And then we, we disagree that the thing is as painful as, as they're claiming it to be. And instead of seeking to build safety and trust, we try to convince them they shouldn't believe in the monster under the bed in the first place. And I, I, I just, I posit that the, the presence of a monster is irrelevant in this conversation. I mean, I don't know. People might quibble at that. Suppose an actual monster is a legitimate threat and maybe we should leave. But, but I, I just, I just think this, I just think it's a good example of like, don't get hung up on being right. Like I wanted to be right so much. I, I really don't think for ego reasons. I think it felt unfair to have what I perceived to be wrong, be like winning the day. And, and but now I just value like the quality of my relationships with the people I love infinitely more than winning like a battle of ideas with them. And I, I, I wish, I wish that was an idea that was more like present in like human society. I think experience a lot less turmoil, both socially and sociopolitically and It'd be good. I mean, yeah, I feel like I'm a big promoter of compassion and I feel like my my depths of having compassion for others grows and just continues to grow with the amount of compassion I have for myself. Like for me going through hard things and facing myself and stuff like really gave me so much compassion for myself, which then gives it to other people. And so it's like now back and forth, but I still think that the reason I can have so much compassion for others and what they're experiencing was from facing my own shit and continuing to do that. (laughs) I want to talk one last thing about, you know, since you did mention earlier on, like things that can happen in relationships is like the sharing of the household duties or whatever. I don't know what you called it, but I feel like that has got to be like such a current day stressor for relationships. And it definitely was something that felt mine. And I had to slowly start like initially, like years before, like this, like, okay, I can ask for this, like, even like ordering dinner, not making dinner, but like, I would like, can you pick a restaurant, you know, like order dinner, like it felt like so many things of like, these days, women, like, even for a stay at home parent, they're doing so much. Stay at home parents are so like disregarded or like, oh, like that. But also, a lot of times, both parents in the house are usually working these days. Not usually, but whatever. Either way, your job is (laughs) you were the stay-at-home parent or your job is outside of the home. Either way, that women or both partners are usually doing so much labor. And then there is this, like, why is it still, like, falls on the women? And it feels like in most relationships that women have to be the ones starting to, like, delegate some and ask for, like, some shared household and even childcare, yeah, like the whole like, oh, your dad, the their dad's babysitting them today, or yeah, like the dad getting like the yeah. credit for like he's helping, or like oh look, he's your dad, the dad took them to get McDonald's, how fun! But if a mom would take them to get McDonald's, like oh, how dare she feed them that? Like the double standard. And, well, and I still say, I still even years of doing this work, I'm still occasionally say helping, helping with the kids, helping with the dishes, helping with the house cleaning, and it's toxic, it's bullshit. And I'm really sorry that I do it, 
And it's, I just think it's a byproduct of a lot of our upbringing, our being like boys growing up in households where like this kind of thing was modeled for us. Um, in my work, I recommend Eve Rodsky's Fair Play like a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but Eve wrote an incredible book, I think called Fair Play, which really, I thought she'd done the best job to date of that, that I'd come across of without making men feel like attacked and judged. Like you're not doing you're not enough. Like you're not doing enough. Like it's sort of like yeah, yeah. It's she doesn't do it like that. She's not like guys. You guys are dicks. She's like, here is what it's like being like a working mother today. And I thought she did an extraordinary job. So I recommend Fair Play to a lot of my clients. And then um, some uh, Emma, Emma, and her last name starts with a G. And I'm so embarrassed. She's German. Her name's escaping me at the moment. But she it was translated into English. It's called You Should Have Asked, and it's like a comic strip. That is so good. And it, I send it to all my clients that are dealing with like this type of problem in their relationship. And I'm like, read this comic because like this helped me so much. And it takes maybe like 10, I don't know, 10 minutes to read. But the, the premise is like, you know, like wife, mother is doing all of these things. And then like bad things happen. And he's like, you should have asked, like you should have asked for help. <laughs> and that was, you know, like that's his great defense is that none of this would have happened if you would have simply like asked me for help. And then she goes on to like educate us like bullards about how women don't want to have to be the CEOs of like their household, the, the inequality of being responsible for managing every process, every childcare, every doctor's appointment, every packed lunch, every homework assignment, every like laundry cycle. And, and that's what I tell like so many of the guys I work with that it's, it's a lot less about participating logistically. For many wives, they may say, screw you, Matt. I literally want him mathematically to do more shit. And fair enough. Every, but every relationship is going to be different. But I truly believe the bigger problem is this nuanced failure to like participate in like the mental load, to participate in the emotional labor, the invisible labor. It's like join your partner in, in, in like the responsibility of calendar management and dinner planning and childcare. And because that is such a heavy, invisible thing that shouldn't be invisible, that it really, really, truly is 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 unequal, and um, I don't know, devastates wives and mothers, and then relationships eventually, if if they're with somebody that won't eventually show up. And that was on my list of sins in in my relationship too, was my failure to participate effectively in like the management of. Shared, I, I call it shared domestic responsibility because it includes house cleaning, it includes financial management, lawn care, um, you know, and child care, all of these things. There's just a million things that she did. Veterinary appointments, and I, I wouldn't clean unless she prompted me. I never packed a lunch until I was divorced and had to, although to be fair. He didn't go to kindergarten until after marriage. But, but well, you probably I wouldn't, wouldn't have. have. Yeah, no. Yes, I wouldn't like, have. I was shit. I mean, I, I was shit. She had to ask me to do stuff. She just did. And that's, that's the harm is the fact that uh, the, how, my contributions are so meaningless to my husband and my mental and emotional wellness is so invisible and unseen and meaningless that my husband, because he never participates or acknowledges any of this that I carry, like for all of us. And I got, you know, you start adding in like criticism like she does all that. And then he's like, well, why didn't you get this at the store? You know, I like the, you know, the guy that's like, I like it better when you make it this way. Holy shit. Don't be that guy. 
please don't be and that what guy. I felt like was not being respected. And it was like a lot of like of these like there was some, you know, like of these little things, but like seeing like, wow, like I don't feel respected and like I'm fucking awesome. Why am I sharing a life with someone <laughs> who does it like, yeah, like I feel like I was being shit on instead of like, what? What? <laughs> and it was just and that was mostly a lot of little stuff. Like I said, I felt like once we had moved through all that, because it did, I did start to delegate a lot more. Um, but too, you said men, you know, are raised that way. I think women are raised that way too, that we should do it all. And that's, and that's, by the way, my first book is coming out in a few months too, which is called F the Shoulds Do the Want, which is all about looking at every should that comes up and seeing so you can get clear on, oh, why am I doing this? Why do I think that? Why am I not doing this? What do I feel? So it's my like life hack of constantly getting clear of what I'm doing, why, and where it's coming from. And like it is, though, it's like hard work to then have to like, why am I doing all of this? But that's like everybody else is. But if he's not offering, but this or that, what does that mean about me? Am I less than because I want help or like whatever? Like there's so much bullshit going on in our minds all the time. But it, a lot of it is from these shoulds, like I should be doing this. And then, oh, wait, but that person, that like, look at that family and how they're doing it. So I should be doing it that way. But then how come he's not jumping in? And it's like so much comparison. And so like figuring, how can we make this work? Oh, anyway, yeah, I'm so glad that there is more of a movement of splitting, um, yeah, home. Uh, congratulations on your book. Um, thank you. Promise, promise another pre-order. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I promise. No, that's really exciting. Um, I really want to be supportive of. I think it's so great. It's your, it's your it's first. It's my book. first book. Yeah. No, it's it's exciting. I mean, if you are experiencing it similarly to how I'm experiencing it, it's, it's a neat time. Is your is this your first book too, or no? Absolutely, it is absolutely. okay. I, I don't know. I'm not smart enough. I'm actually no, afraid. I thought it was, but then I also was like, one. "Yeah, awesome." No, I don't know if I have a second one in me. We'll we'll find out. Yeah, no, it is. Thank you. It's a big deal, and I'm a big deal. I'm like, I feel that, and I know you feel that. Okay, I'm going to ask the questions I ask everyone. The first one is, "What do you do to feel joy? Like to get a little joy boost if you're feeling like off." You're not in a great mood, maybe, and you're about to see your kid. You don't want to be a grumpy asshole. Like, what was something you do to get some joy? That's it's that's so interesting. I I I don't know that I know how to manufacture it. That's something I probably need to work on. The when I feel joy, though, without question. I mean, he certainly does a lot for me. I love that child like intensely. But being with like friends and family that don't stress me out. You know, some family members are like. You get it. It's I I feel so much joy when I'm socially connected. Like that brings me joy. So in theory, if my schedule allows for it, intentionally putting myself with friends and us doing something like, I don't know, I'm a bourbon whiskey enthusiast. So like sometimes we'll go to like a whiskey bar and we'll like, you know, have a few bourbons I've never had or something. That's always like a lovely thing. Awesome. But yes, I So I don't know. I don't know if like alcohol consumption should be on like a wellness conversation, but it's all good. No, I like years ago, somebody that I like have known years was all like nervous. Like I, he said some things that were like great. And then I was like, it's not getting coffee. Like I know you and you love coffee. He's like, oh, I'm allowed to say that like going to get a cup of coffee brings me joy. I'm like, yes, <laughs> like here I am, like the no shoulds person. Like you're not supposed to feel shame for what brings you joy. <laughs> like he said, so like, I was like, those are nice things that you just said, but I'm pretty sure I know you <laughs> and you love coffee. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I'd like to clarify. I'd like to clarify that the alcohol consumption part of it's not the joy giving yes, part. Of it, it was the being it's, with the it's, friends. It's shared, yeah. <laughs> shared activity of mutual interest with someone else brings me. Joy. But yeah, but I'm trying to say there's no right way. But yeah, and the thing is, uh, yeah, what is a go to to raise your joy levels is the proper question. I'll let I have the thing for me. But yes, yeah, so and maybe now you can take that with you of like, you know, it can be something as easy as like, oh, I like to play this song. I go outside. I call a friend. Music, music does help. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of new music. I, I love, I love finding, discovering new music. Like I love like Friday, all the like new Apple Music releases, and I'll just listen to like 20 albums, not at one time because I can't, but I'll like, I'll just capture everything that looks like remotely interesting to me. And you know, I usually end up only liking like one or two of them, but I love that moment where you hear it and you're like, that. That's amazing. That's so good to me. Uh, okay. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. And so I ask everybody to apply that to your life, like a habit, a natural way of being. Um, yeah, this could be in relationships. Perhaps you want to name like what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. Yeah, my gosh. I mean, I can name ev- everything wrong in my life applies to like that question, that dichotomy. It's, um, uh, what's easy for me is not managing my mail and letting it pile up and not dealing with it because who gives a shit because all my bills are on auto pay anyway. But what's best for me is opening all of my mail so that my family members who send me cards and letters feel loved and acknowledged so that if there's some weird bureaucratic thing that I have to deal with in my life, I don't be like, what are you talking about? I didn't know that that was a thing. And they're like, well, we mailed it to you. And it's like, oh, that's an ineffective way of communicating. Didn't you know? Psychically. You know, everything from exercise and healthy eating, it seriously applies to all things where some element of like discipline and loving yourself enough to choose wellness is like, that's the way. And, and, and sometimes, I mean, I'm guilty of not doing that. And I don't know. It's, it's one of my, it's one of the, the growth things for me to continue to pursue. I've been hyper-focused on relationships, but there is a relationship with ourselves and I'm aware of it. And that yes. And that was question is not meant to shame you. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't think so. You, you didn't know. I was what I am. But, no, but I like, am that guy. I think it's good for ourselves and just for people to hear admit like, right, we all like struggle with like, right, we know it's this and that. Like for our, to own our humanness again and give ourselves more compassion. Um, okay. The last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It because I feel so often we are like chasing these things, these ways that we want to feel like in like, oh, if I do this, then I'll be enough. Then I'll be successful. Then I'll be fulfilled. But we spend too much time looking at like what that would look like and not what would that feel like? And I feel like we focus on, oh, what would it feel like to be enough? What would it feel like to be fulfilled? Like actually feeling in our body, we actually have the ability to claim it at any time. It can be a little challenging, but what are you claiming for yourself today? Well, in light of this book coming out and in light, so, so a lot more people are learning about what I do, right? And I'm having these conversations and then I get like kind feedback, you know, people read it and they're like, oh, Matt, like, this is really great. Like, thank you for being this. Or we have these conversations and, you know, I know people are nice about it. And I, and I have a lot of friends are like, really proud of me. Friends and family are like really proud. And so, you know, in the context of claiming, it's like, I like to do the like humble and like deflective and like self-deprecating thing, which is partially real, certainly because I don't feel like amazing about myself, but I don't think I'm that great. But I, I am extraordinarily proud of the journey that I've been on for nine years. 
And I really was like an asshole who like didn't know he was an asshole. I really thought I was nice. And, and, I, and I tried to be nice. But again, the math results of my behavior hurt other people. And I accepted no responsibility for it. And I blamed their emotional calibration or their brain for like how they responded to me. I'm so incredibly proud of me claiming accepting responsibility for how I show up in the world and how that impacts others. And I really do feel a sense of like self-satisfaction about like that work that I've been on. I'm going to be an infinitely better father, romantic partner, friend, son, all of these things because of it. Awesome. I love that. And um, yeah, I'm so excited. We both have our first books coming out. <laughs> Congratulations. And yeah, I, I'm sure that your book is going to help so many people and relationships shining lights on things. And yay. Yay you. Yay, yay you. I'm excited. <laughs> Was that a terrible? To read. <laughs> F, no, it's awesome. And I mean, <laughs> F the Sheds is such a good title too. I really like that you we're able to like easily segue into that. And, and like, we were talking about something really specific and, and I totally agreed with it. This idea that women feel like they should be doing some of this stuff where they're, they're suffering fundamentally for it. And then they feel ashamed because like, why do I feel bad about this thing when like mom did it or grandma did it or my whatever did it. Um, or because I see it on TV. That's I, I love that you like grabbed that subject matter and wrote about what I imagine is a very empowering story. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with guest Matthew Frey. Go check out his book, This Is How Your Marriage Ends. You can learn more about him at matthewfrey.com. He's at Frey Relationships. It's F-R-A-Y on social media. Of course, all things me, trishhuffman.com. I'm at underscore Trish Huffman is my main account on Instagram. I also have Claim It Podcast and Your Joyologist. And um, also, of course, go get my book if you haven't yet, F the Shoulds, Do the Once. And I don't know when you're listening to this yet, but um, May 17th is a live virtual party and workshop. So if you're listening to it before then, go claim a spot by ordering the book and entering your details at ftheshouldsdothewants.com. If you're listening to this after May 17th, you're still going to get bonuses. You just won't have access to the live workshop or recording. If you, even if you can't make the live workshop on May 17th, but you enter the details before May 17th, you'll get access to the recording. Afterwards, you still get my five bonus videos, and the exclusive tapping meditation from Jessica Ortner. All right. Thank you so much. F the shoulds, do the once.com. And final question, what are you claiming for yourself right now? What want are you claiming for yourself right now? <laughs>